What does it mean to be called crazy in a crazy world? Listen to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Sponsored by peer-run support communities, Freedom Center, The Icarus Project, and Portland Hearing Voices. Madness Radio can be heard on FM stations on the Pacifica Radio Network and is online at kboo.fm slash madnessradio. Today our guest is Dr. Toby Watson. Toby is a clinical depth psychologist in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. He's the clinical and doctoral training director of Associated Psychological Health Services, the director of the International Center for the Study of Psychiatry and Psychology, and a member of Mind Freedom International. And we are speaking today about issues of ethics in psychotherapy practice. So thank you for joining me on Madness Radio, Dr. Toby Watson. Thank you, Will. Nice to be here. I'm really interested in talking today about some of the things that have really become sort of standard practice in the way that psychotherapy is done and counseling is done in the United States under the uh, influence of pharmaceutical companies and also under the influence of the culture of coercion and control that we have where people are forcibly hospitalized, where um, people get unforced medication orders. And you take a very different um, perspective. You're a member of Mind Freedom International and very much interested in freedom and choice and self-determination. Toby, tell us about how you got interested in questioning some of the ways that uh, more mainstream psychotherapists uh, operate. Well, I was pretty mainstream up until my graduate training. And what I mean mainstream is I mean I came from an experiential psychology program at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee and then um, was told and believed that, you know, working with people labeled and diagnosed schizophrenic and bipolar. And at that time, depression hadn't really become as, quote-unquote, biological as it is today. But when I went off to my graduate study program, Again, it was reinforced throughout the training that, you know, my role was really to do adjunct type work for these people who were mentally, quote unquote, ill. And it wasn't until that I met Dr. Kevin McCready at San Joaquin Psychotherapy Center in uh, Clovis or Fresno, California, where I did my training, that uh, I was enlightened. And he had, at that time, I believe, the only outpatient and day treatment type clinic in the country that would help and assist people in tapering and uh, eventually eliminate the use and reliance upon psychotropic medications. And it was there while I was trained by him and Dr. Mark Popper, who runs it today, as uh, Kevin uh, passed away uh, uh, several years ago, that I saw people who, you know, had come right out of the hospital, who had been on psychotropics for literally decades, slowly taper down. And there was structure, support, and uh, just good treatment put in place where all of a sudden you started to see, you know, what Gary Prouty, Dr. Prouty would call moments of clarity. And these little moments of clarity started to get a little larger and a little larger. And I uh, became a believer. I literally did a 180 and said, wait a minute, I've been lied to here. My, all these studies and all this training has told me that you can't do this with patients and people who are quote-unquote mentally ill that have some sort of biochemical genetic deficiency. So that was really the message that you got in your graduate training was you're just a supplement here for medication, that therapy is something that needs to be done on top of or along with 
medication because, hey, these are biological problems, they're genetic, they're about brain chemistry, and unless you do medication, you're really not helping the person. That was the message that you got in your training? For the more, quote-unquote, severe labels or diagnoses or difficulties of life, yeah, that, that really was the underlying message. And it was very confusing at the time why we were learning and studying all these, you know, interventions and, you know, cognitive behavioral interventions or psychoanalytic interventions or ways of trying to help when we'd go to a different class and then we were told psychopathology or neurology that it's about brain chemistry and genetics and markers turning things on and off and... And so we really were kind of confused. And then with the health psychology track, it became very clear that your job was basically to make sure these patients, you know, took their medications. And a lot of the interventions were based on trying to maintain patients on medications and make them believe in the medical model. You know, and, and I was one of the believers for uh, at least a, a short period of time until I uh, started becoming very critical and really looking at the research through a different lens, which is what I am so thankful for, uh, having met Dr. McCready at that time, because the one thing I took away from there, in addition to being able to be a more humane and, I think, effective therapist, was to be just a really free thinker, a very critical thinker, where I wasn't just indoctrinated into a mindset uh, from the get-go. What were some of the things that you discovered when you started to be more critical of the research? I mean, I imagine these are studies and textbooks that you're reading in school. And, and how did you and what did you sort of discover when you started to look more, more critically at that? Well, what I started to find were some really wonderful books and articles that were already done. I wish I could say that, you know, I've been doing the, the research myself and being able to keep, you know, tracking uh, the patients that we see at our clinic. But ultimately, this work has already been done. You know, the work of Bob Whitaker, you know, with regards to the history and outcome data on uh, people labeled and diagnosed schizophrenic. I mean, there's no greater reference than the work that he has done with that, where you look at literally dozens of long-term and short-term double-blind, well-controlled studies. These are the gold standards. These were the NIMH studies that were done back in the day and all the way up until most recently, the last few years. And what you find is that really when you look at this data and you take a, you know, maybe uh, 500 people with strained reasoning, i.e. diagnosed schizophrenic, first episode, going in the hospital, and you put a five, you know, half of them into the typical mainstream drug hospitalization type program, and you take half and you try something different, whether it be a Satura house, or you do a non-drug program, or you just do you know, placebo, or whatever they're going to do, what you find is that often you may see a short-term gain, i.e. symptom reduction for people labeled schizophrenic, and you will see a suppression of the unwanted thought, feeling, or behavior. But what you find then is very quickly the people who are the non-drug group outperform and have a more positive outcome than the people who have been taking the drugs. I, with Bob's permission and other research I found, highlighted this on my own website, and I think we probably have, I would say, probably 30, if not 40 studies highlighting this dynamic where you have pretty close to a twice the likelihood of recovery uh, if you don't ever take the medications. If you simply try to work in a more either, I guess, holistic or community-based type approach. So there's a short-term gain in the sense of controlling symptoms, calming someone down, making them act a little bit more normal. But in the long term, the studies are really showing that the outcomes are 
pretty bad and that actually medicating people over the long term creates more chronic disability and gets people stuck in these problems that the medications are supposed to be supposed to be curing now what is it that you saw in school in terms of the things that people are being is it pretty much studies that are influenced by the pharmaceutical company agenda is it pretty much a medical biological perspective that's being pushed and then people aren't really looking at them critically I, I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, obviously, I'm an N or a sample of one. And uh, in my school, you know, it may not be representative of what's going on at a lot of the universities. I went to a professional school out in California. But it would be my guess if the research and what we're seeing in the professional peer-reviewed journals is indicative of what's happening in the graduate schools, which I imagine it is. Yes, that's exactly what's happening is that you're having schools uh, getting grants and funding and, you know, the teachers who are teaching these classes are getting speaking engagements and gigs to give talks that are funded by drug companies. And it all becomes, you know, again, a little, uh, a little biases. And we pretend often as researchers and professionals that we can't be misled and that we know drug companies, quote unquote, are, are the bad guys and, you know, we got to watch out for them because they're profit driven. But just being aware of that doesn't stop the biases. They will find people who will support their model and they will use them again and again and again, just like the clinical trial data. If I do a clinical trial for a drug company and I give them the unfavorable results, they will not ask me to do clinical trials again and they will just simply work with the clinics that seem to always produce favorable results so you get a very biased sample give you an idea of what happened in graduate school I wanted to go to uh, Dr. McCready's clinic which I had heard was a very Jungian very psychodynamic treatment facility and I thought perfect that's what I want to do in my life that's kind of where I'm going now and leading down this path and uh, my training director of the school, I won't mention names, but my training director of the school for field placement told me that there was a waiting list for that particular placement site. I then verified with some other students that there wasn't a waiting list. I was then told that it was a neuro site, that this was more of a neuro site and, uh, site and it wouldn't be good for me there, that I should go to this community counseling center where they wanted to place me. And then I verified that with some students and again, uh, it wasn't true. And so three times I had to go back to my training director who had adamantly point blank lied to me about this site. Finally, I contacted Dr. McCready, which was against the rules. And they said that I would be in trouble if I did this. Well, I did it anyway. And I went to him directly and said, hey, this is what's happening. What's going on? And he contacted the head of the depth program or Jungian program at my school. They got together and they contacted the uh, head of the training department and confronted them and said, what are you doing? You're, you're steering people away from this site. And the response told to me and, and to everybody was that his job was to make me marketable. And that was a quote. My job is to make you marketable and it would be better for you to be at this other facility. So that's what the schools are about. They're trying to make people marketable. At least my school was at that time. My response was, I don't want to be marketable. I want to be a good psychologist to help people. It was even a little ironic, I guess, because you know Dr. McCready had been one of the teaching adjunct staff members at the school for a number of years, and he also was listed as one of the training sites that we you know had to pick from. So even though they had them listed yet, obviously this particular field placement uh, director wasn't interested in having people placed there and uh, had his own agenda. And that's a very powerful position to be in. It only takes a few people in very powerful positions to really affect a huge widespread change. 
So we talked a lot on Madness Radio about this issue of a recovery from a diagnosis of schizophrenia, recovery from a diagnosis of bipolar, and the role that the pharmaceutical companies and this kind of medical brain disease view has um, played in in pushing a medication agenda and really getting this treatment to become the standard of care that you, if you have a diagnosis of bipolar and if you have a diagnosis of schizophrenia or even now severe depression, it pretty much seen that you need to be on medication because, hey, that's what works. These are physiological problems with the brain. And we've talked a lot about that on, on Madness Radio. We've had uh, Robert Whitaker has been a guest, and I encourage people to check out our, our archives of the past shows that we've done. What I'm really interested in talking with you as a practicing psychotherapist is that some of the ethical issues that you get into, because if you are a clinician and if you are out practicing in the world and you don't see medications as the answer how do you navigate that in terms of accusations that maybe you're committing malpractice or you're doing something wrong or you're going to harm uh, the clients because that's the atmosphere that we're in as a society that deviating from this very strict schizophrenia bipolar must be medicated view regardless of the fact that the, 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 the studies, if you look closely at the studies, shows a very different picture, regardless of that, to be a practitioner and a clinician really exposes you to a lot of these sort of ethical charges that you're not um, treating your, your, your clients right. That is the boogeyman in the closet that they tell you constantly, and, and you know, you, you feel that in, in graduate school, I think, and you feel that when you start practicing that, you know, oh my God, I don't want to be sued. Oh, I don't want to have my license taken. I work so hard for it. Well, in reality, it is just that. It's the boogeyman. If you look at the statistics out there, you are so much more likely to be sued for medicating one of your patients and for doing some sort of malpractice by, you know, referring somebody like that than you would ever be for not referring. I mean, I remember a, a couple of years ago looking for cases where uh, a practitioner, therapist, psychologist would be sued for not putting somebody on a medication or at least referring them and saying, hey, you need to go get some, some drugs. And I couldn't find one. I could not find one for that. I know that a number of years ago, Dr. David Stein, who is just a, a wonderful therapist and uh, works with a, a lot of children, he's got several books out there on uh, Ritalin is not the answer, he was attacked by a local psychologist because of his stance of not medicating and using drugs when working with children. And he had literally, I think, 100 plus letters of other researchers and therapists and psychologists and psychiatrists support him in saying that absolutely you don't need to be doing this. You don't need permission to not medicate. You can very much have an opinion about drugs. I think that's one of the biggest uh, shortcomings of psychologists and therapists is that they don't take a more active stance on the medication issue. Uh, they feel like, well, I'm not a, an MD and I, and I shouldn't say anything about it. That's absolutely not true. If your client came into you and said, hey, I'm thinking about snorting some lines of cocaine because I've been feeling kind of sad and depressed and I feel suicidal, I guarantee you the therapist would say, whoa, wait a minute. I don't think this is going to be helpful. And this is why I don't think it's going to be helpful. I think that therapists have an obligation. Now, at least a minimum, you could say, hey, you know what? You may want to take an antidepressant, but here's what you may not know and really just support their decision making. And that's usually what I try to do in the practice is I take a very neutral approach. So I'm not pro-med. I'm not against meds. I recognize that taking a medication can lower a thought, feeling, or behavior that you may not want. But it also comes with a huge price. And I know it comes with that price because the research is overwhelming. 
So I think one, we really need to know the research, but two, we need to be able to, I think, to be ethically on safe ground. We need to really uh, let them know and say, look, these meds could do this thing for you, um, but here's the problems with it. That's a really important comparison that you made between uh, psychiatric medications and drugs in general, recreational drugs that people use. There's sort of this myth in the society that I think is promoted by um, psychotherapists and psychiatrists, and they sort of say, well, we're not quite sure why the psychiatric drugs work. The brain is very mysterious, but actually it's pretty clearly established that these are psychoactive substances like any psychoactive, like caffeine, like alcohol, like cocaine, like you mentioned, and whether you're taking an antidepressant or you're taking lithium or you're taking one of the, the so-called antipsychotics or, or so-called mood stabilizers, they are causing psychoactive changes in your brain that result in intoxication. That's an intoxication experience. You're being tranquilized. You're being elevated because of the stimulant quality that the the drug or the medication has, and then that has some effect on your consciousness, on your mind, on your behavior, and that may be felt and experienced as positive, but it's not a correcting of a chemical imbalance. It's not a medical targeted intervention on psychosis. It's not something that's fixing your serotonin balances because you're depressed. It's actually much more like street drugs. And well, if you want to take street drugs to help you cope, then a lot of people do that. We're a whole society that promotes alcohol use and that promotes the use of caffeine and and sugar and people are using marijuana and all these different substances to change their consciousness. But we have this myth that those are different than psychiatric drugs, that they're somehow radically and totally different. But actually, they're really not. You're absolutely right, Will. And I think if more therapists and practitioners would say what you just said and put that all out there, they would be practicing ethically. But unfortunately, and we know the truth, that that's not what happens. When, you know, nine out of ten people walk into an MD's office for any sort of, you know, even closely resembling a mental health issue, they walk out with a psychotropic drug prescription. These are 10, 15 minute, you know, at most consult that bing, bang, zoom, and they're out. And if you ask and do follow-ups, they're not told about all of the side effects, the drug withdrawal problems, the toxicity to the brain, and all of the other things that go along with it. And so the ethics issue here is really about being honest, and we're not saying, I mean, I know many people who take psychiatric medications, and my concern with them is that they have the accurate information so that they're able to make an effective choice for themselves and to know the risks and the potential benefits, because sometimes they can be helpful to people, especially um, looking at short-term use, but the point is to be honest about how the medications work and how they don't work. Um, so it's not about being anti or pro-medication. It's about being pro-honesty. And that's really one of the central pieces, I think, of being an ethical practitioner. And it's interesting that you say that, that there is this bogeyman, there is this fear that, oh, if I don't give my clients medication, then I'm going to be sued. But actually, there's a huge risk with giving clients medication because that's really where the lawsuits are happening right now because of the side effects of the medications themselves are so risky. And we don't kind of hear about that side of it. And so I really would hope that more counselors and psychotherapists would be willing to work with, as you do, clients who come in with a bipolar diagnosis, with a schizophrenia diagnosis, with a schizoaffective diagnosis, and say, hey, maybe medication isn't the way to go here. Maybe I want to help you reduce or come off your meds, or maybe we want to try a non-medication 
approach. And you've seen that be effective in your practice over the years, uh, Toby. Is that something that you've seen actually does help people over the long term? I have. And here's a, a prime example with regards to depression and like suicide. And obviously we know about the mandated reporting where you need to, you have a duty to protect that person from self-harm and to other people. And if somebody starts to talk about suicide, you need to do a suicide assessment, i.e., do they have a plan, do they have the means, do they fit the demographics, and so forth, uh, prior attempts and whatnot. What they don't tell you is, okay, what do you do, and you've done that, and, you know, the person's kind of borderline, and it's very subjective. So ethically speaking, they, uh, you're on safe ground to, to make the call and say, hey, look, you know, I, I need to, I'm worried about you, I'm going to call the hospital, and, and I think you need to be there. Ethically, you could be on safe ground to do that. Morally, you might be mucking up your therapy with your client, and they may never return. They, of course, they may come back and say, hey, gee, you know, doc, I appreciate it. My God, no one's ever done that for me. It might go very well. I think one of the things is that, you know, the therapist needs to be experts, and they need to have freedom to choose. And again, with the law coming down and saying you have to do it, freedom goes out the window. You don't have a choice is what I often hear. And what I often tell students is, of course you have a choice. You always have a choice. You do not have to do the mandated reporting. Civil disobedience does occur. If you put your patient first and you believe that it is going to be best to not make that report, then by all means, you are putting your patient first and you are putting your license on the line. If it goes bad or if somebody finds out, you may end up losing your license. You may end up having to go before the board. But you do have a choice. You may not like the outcome, but it depends on what you decided and how you're going to practice and what you're going to do. Let's look a little bit more deeply at this issue of suicide risk because you, you, you mentioned, I mean, that it is so, so subjective. I mean, one practitioner will sit down with a client and say, look, I need to call 911. This person is they're at risk for suicide. And another practitioner will, will, won't do that. It's ultimately very subjective. And I've worked for years in peer support groups and now starting to work as a counselor. And I, I work with people all the time who talk about being suicidal. And suicidal feelings are much more common in our culture than we want to acknowledge. And there is this attitude that I think a lot of counselors get into that it's their responsibility, that if something were to happen with that client, that they're going to be blamed, that they're going to be held accountable, that the family is going to go after them, that they're going to be sued or they're going to be some kind of criminal charge or there's going to be something about their license. And so as a result, just from a kind of insurance risk point of view, the, the practitioner says, well, I better be conservative here and lock this person up because that's the right thing to do without recognizing, first of all, that it's a violation of someone's liberty. Second of all, how can you talk freely with your counselor and your psychotherapist about your innermost feelings and torments and fantasies and longings if there's this possibility of the police coming to your house and taking you away because you talked about suicide? And then additionally, there's the whole risk and danger of harm that can come from the hospitalization process itself, the use of force. I mean, basically for a lot of people, myself included, being forcibly hospitalized because I was a risk of suicide ended up being essentially an assault and a kidnapping. It was terribly shocking to me. It was a traumatic experience and an absolutely violent experience. And then that becomes more emotional problems that I have to deal with over the long term. And everyone wanted to talk to me about my depression, my schizophrenia, my voices, my paranoia, all the different things that I was going through, but the actual harm that was done 
by the hospitalization experience is completely overlooked and not acknowledged as being one of the risks that you run when you force one force someone in, into the hospital in the name of protecting them from suicide. I think something that might illustrate this well is that I had worked with a, a client that came to see me, and she had been a, a long-time patient. Uh, she had some strained reasoning. She was had multiple suicide attempts. She was incredibly depressed, incredibly aggressive. And we started working together, and I noticed that over the months, she slowly would kind of push the envelope by giving me a little more details and starting to get to those ethical questions where, gee, you know, is this something that I need to report? And she was testing me, and I recognized that that she was testing me. And I had told her several times that, look, uh, I am here to help you work through your moral dilemmas. I am not here to control you. I am not here to tell you what to do. This is your life. I am here to help you figure out how you want to govern it and whether or not you even want to maintain that life and whether you'd like to terminate your life. I will not take over. And uh, she had never heard that before. She had gone to at least six or seven therapists, two of which I heard that she had punched out, literally had punched in the face, and she was kind of a big woman, and then would terminate therapy. So there was a history of getting close, and then that would be it several mandated reporting calls and child abuse calls and, and whatnot. And so I started working with her and she started to call me in between sessions and she would say, you know, that she was extremely suicidal, that she was very uh, angry and upset. The one call she made uh, was one of the first ones that she made to me, which was, she said, I have the pills in my hand. I'm going to do it. I'm going to kill myself. I'm at home right now and uh, I don't want to live. And I told her very politely and calmly, I said, I understand. I said, but I'm not sure why you're calling me. And she said, well, because I'm going to kill myself. And I said, well, I understand that, but I'm probably 40 miles away from you, and there's nothing that I can do about it. But I do recognize that there must be a part of you that wants to live. And the part that wants to live called me because you wanted me to do something or control you or hospitalize you or do something. And there's a part of you that wants to die, which is the part that's you know, taking the pills or is in such pain right now. And I said, I can't control you. I'm not going to. I'm not going to call the police or do anything. So all I can do is maybe talk to you for a few moments. I said, I'm not going to stay on the phone with you and talk you down for the next 20 minutes or hour. She goes, but that's what my other therapist did. I said, yes, and look how poorly that worked. You're still in therapy and you're still suicidal. I said, if I give you 20 minutes on the phone, I said, that feels good to you. So now I've paired a good feeling with you becoming suicidal. I said, that's the fastest way to make somebody a suicidal patient, chronically suicidal, is to indulge that behavior. I said, so I'm not going to do that. I'll give you two, three minutes on the phone. Let's brainstorm some ideas of how you can protect yourself. I have no doubt you're capable of killing yourself, and you may, but I recognize that you do have control and choice here. So let's come up with some ideas of where you could go in order to provide safety for yourself. And so we took just about yeah, maybe three, four minutes, and we came up with some ideas of what she was going to do. And uh, at that point, then I hung up the phone and she didn't want me to hang up. She was quite angry with me and she said she was still going to do it. And I hung up on her. I hung up the phone on her. She was suicidal with pills in the hand. And without question, that would potentially be unethical. I could be held liable, you know, even maybe even criminal. But I believed in that dynamic of saying this is good therapy. And unfortunately, other therapists have mucked her up and conditioned her to be dependent on me. And so this was a pivoting point from the early onset of saying, I'm not going to take control. I'm not going to take responsibility for you. You have to take responsibility for yourself, even to the point of meaning that, that you may end up you know, passing on or dying. Well, she came in the next session, and she was 
really angry with me and she spent most of the session talking about how horrible of a person I was and, and we went on from there. Well, ultimately, immediately the suicidal ideation started to go to the wayside. She stopped calling me and things got better. But there's not people willing to stand up in front of an audience and talk about being able to very specifically intervene with somebody like that which, if you think about it, it makes very good cognitive behavioral sense, but it's based on good psychoanalytic principle. If you're just tuning in, this is Madness Radio, and our guest today is Dr. Toby Watson. He's a clinical depth psychologist in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, the clinical and doctoral training director of Associated Psychological Health Services, and the director of the International Center for the Study of Psychiatry and Psychology, and we are speaking about ethics in psychotherapy. It's such a powerful story, and it's quite scary, but it sounds like you had enough of a sense of what had not worked for her in the past that you were going to really do something different. And it sounds like you were really deeply honest with her as well, just really being upfront about what you felt like would be helpful and would not be helpful. Do you think that that's really common among psychotherapists, that they feel like they are kind of the police for the client, that they're really in control and that ultimately if the client screws up or ends up dying or something bad happens, that it's going to land in the therapist's lap and therefore it's their responsibility? I I think that therapists have kind of the hero archetype, you know, and if you're familiar with Jungian psychology, the hero archetype can be incredibly powerful where you really do take over and you want to be the savior of these people and recognizing that we ultimately can't always be, quote-unquote, the savior, and that people really have free will and choice, and we need to respect that and recognize that all we can do and all we can share with them is ourselves. I mean, the idea is learn your theory well, learn all these techniques, learn all these things about psychology and human development and infant attachment and neurology, but put it all up on the shelf when you sit down and you walk into that room with the patient, because ultimately the only thing you really have to give them is yourself. You may do a behavioral intervention with them. You may do some skill training. You may, you know, use silence. You may do some intervention, but ultimately it's coming from your humanity. And that's the only thing that's going to restore an injury to somebody's humanity is being humane to them in some way. So if the woman in your example had ended up killing herself, one important thing to remember is that it's not your fault. It's, it wouldn't be Dr. Toby Watson's failure to intervene correctly. I mean, this person has got a whole life that led to that moment of being suicidal. And the idea that the therapist is going to either do the right thing or not do the right thing, it puts way too much power and way too much of a fantasy of the savior and the the God and the hero on to the therapist, that the, it's really the therapist that makes the final power to give or take away life. When actually it's people are living their lives and they have very mysterious, powerful forces that are going on. And when the research that I've done looking at the suicide issue, and we've talked about suicide a number of times on this show before, there really is no way to predict who is going to actually end up killing themselves and who is not going to end up killing themselves. When suicide does happen, it leaves a huge mystery that there isn't anything that you can point to that if this person had done this or this person had done that, that would have made the difference. Well, we can imagine that maybe, but ultimately you cannot put a single causal causal factor on why someone kills themselves and why someone else doesn't. We don't like to feel vulnerable. 
I mean, that's a human condition. We don't like to feel in this ethereal, nebulous kind of state of we're not quite sure what's going to happen. And that really is life. And when you're working with a client, especially if you're working in a more psychoanalytic modality, is you really need to be comfortable with that state of just being, very existential of just we're here, I don't know what's going to happen, I don't know where this is going to go, I have no idea what you're going to really do. And I think that that they've led and tried to get therapists to a false sense of security, whether it be, well, you have to form a suicide contract. Well, if that was based in some sort of evidence, at least, to say that these work and that we know that if you do X, Y, Z, it will reduce someone killing themselves, I would be for it, again, with the idea of you know, not it being coercive and, and if you really researched it well, but the idea that, oh, you have to use suicide contracts, well, really that's just to protect yourself, cover your butt so that you don't get sued. Oh, you have to document in the, in the clinical file. I mean, my God, how many times have I heard that, that, you know, you got to keep excellent records and if you didn't write it down, it didn't happen. That's just silly. The moment that you start being a policing agent or the moment that you start to cover your butt, you've stopped doing good therapy and you've increased the risk of that person committing suicide. The number one way to reduce suicide is to provide good therapy. The moment you start referring for meds, you immediately are starting to go down a path where you're trying to control your patient and you're saying there's something wrong with you. There's basically, you know, really just a couple ways to get placed on drugs or in the hospital. You either scare your therapist or you frustrate your therapist. If you frustrate them and they've been trying it over and over, the interventions, and they're not working, the therapist will blame you and say, well, you know what, maybe it's time for a med consult. There must be something wrong with you. Very, very rarely will you hear a therapist say, you know what, I feel like I'm missing something. I don't know if I'm able to help you. I've been trying this. It doesn't seem like it's getting better. You know, I, I think maybe that I'm not able to help you. You never hear a therapist do that and then refer you to another therapist. You hear them say that you need it and you're the problem here. And, and that's what I try to teach, you know, the, uh, the students when they come to the clinic is that we need to be looking at ourselves in relation to the client. And if the client's not getting better, you don't look at them. You look at yourself. What are you missing? What are you doing? How are you feeling? What's going on for you? And, and you know, maybe you're trying to control. Maybe that's the problem. And there is this idea that, well, if we send someone to the hospital who's suicidal, then that is a safety intervention. Well, actually, there isn't solid research suggesting that that's true because people get out of hospitals. And in fact, there's some studies that I've seen that show that the suicide rate among people who've been hospitalized is actually higher than people who have not been hospitalized. So again, you may be doing this short-term intervention that makes you feel better and looks good in the eyes of the potential bogeyman of the lawsuit or the um, professional judgment or responsibility from insurance companies, but actually in the long term, there's not a clear sense that hospitalization is going to actually reduce someone's risks of suicide. And I think that hospitals, if they would serve the function that I would like them to, and I think what they used to serve, you know, and they did serve it at one time, they don't do it now. But if, for example, I become suicidal and I become severely depressed and I'm like, I don't know what to do. I am scared. I could really do this to myself. I need help. And I reach out to my therapist because that's who I trust and they're, you know, the person I'm going to call. And they say, hey, you know what? You need to go to the hospital. That could be a good intervention. Maybe I didn't think of that. Oh, gee, you're right. Maybe I should go there. But the problem is exactly what you said is that I go to the hospital and I go in there and it's, you know, eight o'clock at night. I'm like, oh, gee. And, uh, you know, they give me a bed and I'm laying down. I'm like, whew. 
you know, and they try to push the meds, which we know they do, but let's say they don't. Wonderful. The next morning I wake up, I say, oh, I'm feeling better. And then I want to leave because I've checked myself in. I should be able to leave. Well, you think that happens? Absolutely not. You go to the desk and you say, hey, I'm feeling better. I'm not suicidal. I'd like to leave. And they say, well, you can't leave. Either A, the doctor hasn't seen you yet. B, even if the doctor does see you, he's going to say, hey, look, you were suicidal. You got major depressive disorder. It's genetic chemical imbalance. And you're going to need to take this medication. You refuse. At that point, they say that you don't recognize. You have lack of insight into your illness. And then they will try to push you and say, well, the only way you're getting out of here is if you take the meds. And if you refuse to do that, then they'll end up maybe going for a court commitment. So immediately it becomes coercive, which informed choice goes out the window. And not to mention, if you're being honest and you're saying, I'm not suicidal anymore, legally, ethically, they should not keep you there. They need to release you, but they don't. And I've had this happen round and round. My clients sometimes would go to the hospital, but they'd want to use the hospital for its intended purpose. I feel I may hurt myself. You can provide maybe safety. You know, if you check me and, and, and there's no way to kill myself in there. And when it passes and the feeling passes, I want to leave then. And they should be allowed to do that. But the problem is the hospital takes control and responsibility and says, well, if I let you go and you kill yourself, we're liable and we're going to be held accountable because we didn't do a good job screening and figuring out whether you're really suicidal or not. And because they took on that responsibility, they become liable. And I recognize the dilemma that they're in. But I think if we as a whole field chart the change and put the onus back onto the patient saying, look, you're saying this, you're saying this, you're saying this, and they can document somehow and recognize and say, look, okay, fine, you know, you're on your way. It would, I think we'd have a lot better outcomes if patients would be granted permission and more autonomy to govern their life. You also work in court situations where people are mandated in the community to take medications, and if they don't continue to take their meds and showing up for their uh, doctor's appointments and complying with their treatment that they could end up again being locked up just as a result of not agreeing with the perspective of their medical care. Correct. And this is commonplace. This is the PACT Act, you know, all these programs that are community assertive treatment, they call it, where that person, you know, is hospitalized because they have strained reasoning or because they said they were suicidal or maybe they're not caring for themselves as much as what people would like. And the hospital says that they need to be medicated. And the, the person may have not ever been in therapy, but they bypass anything like that and they immediately go to a drug approach, a coercive approach. And when the patient says, gee, I don't want to do this, often they're you know, low income and they don't have means to fight it legally. They're given a public defender. They tell their public defender, hey, I don't want to take the meds. The public defender doesn't know any better. I mean, this public defender does these you know, routinely day after day after day, and it's always meds, 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 and the doctors are all saying that it's you know, biochemical and it's lack of insight. So the attorneys don't understand, so they say, well, my client's not capable of participating in his own defense, and so the client's written off as a psych patient, and they're put on the meds. And every once in a great while, you may have an attorney who will try to fight it or stand up and not believe in the medical model. And they might do a little research and they might find someone like myself who will stand up and say that there's alternatives to the medications. But at that point, it becomes very challenging because usually they're given a very short period of time to prepare. In fact, I've been at the hospital on behalf of a patient that I've just started to work with. And the attorney walked in. I kid you not, the attorney had literally... 45 seconds, maybe a minute 
to look at the file and walk into the court, which is right in the hospital. It's just a room in the in the uh, the psych ward. And at that moment, make a defense. And he knew that I was there. He talked to me for all 30 seconds. And rather than supporting the client's wish of wanting to contest and fight it, because the client had relocated to our city, the attorney sandbagged him and just said, hey, this client just came here from this other city, and I think this is jurisdiction for this other city, and I don't think we should be dealing with this person because they're really not uh, a long-term resident here. They just moved here. And so the judge agreed, and they gavel went down and he was on a bus within two hours compliments of uh, the sheriff's department and so i was outraged i couldn't believe that the attorneys would do this but the more that i've worked with attorneys the more i recognize that attorneys are ill-equipped to support the rights of their clients and they're ill-equipped intellectually to understand what is going on and so we as psychologists and we as therapists really need to be advocates to really support their right to not be medicated. And compounding that is that when people don't want to be medicated, there are no programs in the communities that provide different kinds of alternative treatments regardless of what the research says about their effectiveness and potential use. Yeah, they're, they're far and few. Hopefully the tide is changing. I mean, Jim Gottstein of PsychRights or PsychRights.org has done just wonderful work within the legal system and now has developed uh, Satira, uh, Alaska, which is based on the work of Lauren Mosier of Satira House that was out in California. Hopefully they, I imagine, are keeping good records and they're going to be able to start showing and highlighting that type of program and treatment outcome and I imagine it might catch on. There's, there's other places. Windhorse, I know, out on the East Coast has been more open to reducing and or eliminating some psychotropic medications. And there's, there's, there's people here and there. You just have to kind of look around a little bit. I think one of the biggest benefits that you could do would be to join Mind Freedom International, uh, which is, again, mindfreedom.org, and really to join um, ICSPP, which is the International Center for the Study of Psychiatry and Psychology, .org, www.icspp.org, because this is going to give you, one, access to this research that you can use. Two, it'll give you networking ability to not only other patients and people who have worked through these issues, but it'll also give you a huge reference, especially through ICSPP, to other therapists throughout the world, several hundreds uh, hundred um, members uh, that are professional members, psychologists, psychiatrists, pediatrician, attorneys, and, and therapists, you'll be able to find somebody. And then you really need to, to do the work and, and maybe attend some of these conferences and lectures. One of the other issues that therapists get into is the mandated reporting if someone is being abused or there's a crime taking place. What, what about the responsibilities that therapists have ethically in those situations? Say, for example, someone comes in who's uh, abusing their girlfriend or their wife or uh, someone who's a, been a victim of abuse in their relationship. Well, again, I think the law is very clear. I mean, you, you have Tarasov and you, and you have the ideas of if someone's going to go harm somebody, you have a duty to warn and a duty to protect. Not even just warn, but they actually take active steps to try to prevent that from happening. And then with children, you know, the law differs state by state. In Wisconsin, it's that I have to have knowledge from the abuser or from the child itself. If I hear it secondhand, a client comes in and they say, hey, a child down the street is being abused. I don't have that uh, duty uh, under Wisconsin law to do that. Whereas in Illinois or California, I did. And then there's spousal abuse you know, laws, I think, in California and, and other states. So it really depends state to state. But regardless, that's where the law 
and ethics and morality may or may not all line up. And most people put law first, ethics second, and the morality third. And, and I'm of the sort that, you know, when I'm working with a patient, my sole responsibility is to my patient. That one person sitting in front of me, and if it's a father or a mother who is using a belt on their child, which you know, would be abusive and they're leaving marks and uh, they're coming in for help, to me it's a matter of like, okay, I'm not putting the law first, I'm not putting ethics first, I'm putting my morality first in the sense that if they're coming in and I know that they had gone to other therapists and it failed and there may have been past reports already and again, you've got to take everything in consideration. But if I recognize and I believe based on my professional judgment that if I report this is not going to be beneficial to this person, I should have the right to be able to use my clinical judgment and working with this person and continue to see them versus saying that I have to default to the law and say, okay, well, you know, the law says I have to report you. I'm sorry, you've told me this. Now you got to go. In which case, I alienate my patient. They're not going to be as open with me. They're not going to talk to me. I had this issue come up in domestic violence. We run domestic violence groups at the clinic by us, and, and we get a lot of the court-ordered people over that are on probation parole. And it's interesting because probation agents want us to report to them if they're reporting future bouts of aggression or violence. How do I get these guys who are known to be batterers into group to start talking about their abuse and about the things that they're doing. But the moment they do that, I'm supposed to go report it to their POs, which means they get thrown back in jail. It's, it's impossible to do the work that I need to do. So we took the stance and say, no, we're not going to report back to you. They can say anything here, anything, and we will work with it, and we will help, and that's what we do, and our outcomes, I think, are quite good. And that's what we're doing is basically getting these guys to share and to open up and to, to go further than they've ever gone before. I think that's one of the problems is that therapists uh, aren't being given the same latitude and permission to allow clients to go to those dark places of our psyche, to go to the shadow so that we can really have a, a, a relationship with it to really understand that dark nature of ourselves so that we can truly change, that we can become more fully human, fully encompassing of ourselves. It's a question of what is the role that a psychotherapist and a counselor plays because if the person can't go somewhere to talk about their feelings around violence, their criminal activities, if they can't talk about the things that they're doing and get help, then how is change going to actually take place? How are they actually going to be able to get some kind of real support and to, to really get into those kinds of issues takes trust and you can't open up emotionally to very complicated and painful dynamics inside of yourself when the person you're talking to is potentially, in essence, a police officer who's going to be reporting what you're saying to um, authorities. And so I think what happens is that we drive people away from getting help by putting counselors and therapists in this role of surveillance and control and police. Right. And I really like the program, um, familiar with uh, volunteers in psychotherapy, which is VIP. And you can see them at uh, VIP.org, run by Dr. Schulman, Richard Schulman, out in Connecticut. And theirs is a volunteer program where they do exactly that. It's 
basically that they have full latitude. They say you can come in and talk about absolutely anything. I think there's a disclaimer again that you know, says that you know they're mandated reporters, but they don't keep any clinical notes. They don't keep anything that can be used against you. And I think that's what therapists are doing across the country. I think there's a lot of therapists doing, even quote unquote more mainstream, even with the the med issue, is I think that they they kind of keep a lot of things hidden. They don't do the mandated reporting as much as they. Uh, could and they really kind of they, they kind of have a little civil disobedience in order to maintain that relationship not all but I think there's quite a few people out there I've gone to a lot of conferences and I've talked about this with other people and it seems there's quite a few therapists that get it but the law is what it is and the politicians don't get it and the really outspoken mucky mucks uh, that are psychologists that you know talk with the politicians they're running the show there's just a few people out there in very powerful positions that make these sweeping changes and then it affects the masses and I don't think that it's indicative of what the masses are really interested in or looking to do. So we are just about out of time Toby it's been great to have you on the show can you give us information about uh, your website and how people can get in touch with you and find out more about your work? They can reach me through our the clinic website which is www.abc medsfree.com so that's abc meds m e d is in david s is in sam free f r e e dot com and that's where um, i work out of and and we see people and probably i'd say about 30% of our clients come from around the country we do quite a bit of uh, work all over the united states or via skype or windows live messenger or they fly in and, and then come by us for a while and at the website, you can find a ton of research on the outcome data on schizophrenia, meds versus non-medical approaches, on bipolar, on depression, on ADHD. And then there's a long list of references that all the websites that I mentioned today are listed and, and quite a few more. Dr. Toby Watson, thank you for joining us on Madness Radio. Thank you, Will. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to an interview with Dr. Toby Watson. He is a clinical depth psychologist practicing in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. He's the clinical and doctoral training director of Associated Psychological Health Services and the director of the International Center for the Study of Psychiatry and Psychology and a member of Mind Freedom International. Thanks for joining us today on Madness Radio. We will see you next time. You've been listening to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Madness Radio is co-sponsored by peer-run support communities, Freedom Center, The Icarus Project, and Portland Hearing Voices. Hosted by Will Hall. Music producer is John Rice with technical assistance from Jeremy Lansman. Listen to our internet stream, podcasts, and show archives at madnessradio.net. Madness Radio can be heard on FM stations on the Pacifica Radio Network, including KBOO in Oregon, WXOJ and WBCR in Massachusetts, Alaska's KWMD, and WPRR in Michigan. If you have an idea for a story or guest on Madness Radio to help get us broadcast on a station near you, or if you just want to share what's in your head, contact radio at madnessradio.net. 